Good morning, Grace Bible. So a couple, I got a couple comments this morning about, hey, I thought you were supposed to be gone today. As much of a wish fulfillment as that may be, uh, the original plan was that my family and I were going to leave after church today for us to go to uh, my denominational conference that's going to be happening this week. Uh, our plans changed a little bit. Uh, we were supposed to spend uh, tonight with a friend, but she got COVID a, a week or so ago, and we don't want to, you know, have to quarantine longer than we you know, have to. So uh, we are avoiding that. We're going to be leaving early tomorrow morning and be gone for a little while. But that's why I am, well, I was planning on going here anyway, but you're going to have to put up with me for just a little bit longer. Um, so thank you for that. And I do want to announce, as we're finishing up the sermon series this week, uh, Pastor Dave is going to be starting a, a new series, a two-week series uh, next week and the following week about a culture of life versus a culture of death. And so I want to encourage you all that, Come and, and listen and to imbibe the, the word of God proclaimed to you all. Well, let's pray before we jump into the word. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your, for your grace to us. And as we open your word, uh, speak to us, Holy Spirit. Confirm your word in our hearts. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need con- encouraging. But in all things, Lord, we ask that you uh, would speak to your people and your people will say yes to you and all that you desire for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Almost. There are few words that carry as much weight as the word almost. For some, sometimes it's, you know, the biggest relief. Like, I almost got fired today. I almost got in an accident. But at other times... It represents the, well, the unfulfilled expectations for which, you know, we would hope. I almost won the race. I almost hit the shot. I almost had a good sermon intro. Almost, it carries a lot of weight. Now, as we, as we enter into, you know, the realm of faith, there is an almost faith, an almost saving faith. And it can, in many ways, look like saving faith. In some ways, it can act like a saving faith. But it is an almost faith in how we respond to God as he comes near to us. And some things can be in place, and some things can be radically, well, misaligned, and we can be almost saving faith. In some ways, it's kind of like a mousetrap. Like, envision in your mind like a mousetrap, not like the real basic $24 kind that you can find at at a hardware store, right? You have the base and, you know, very simple components, you know, the striker, the spring, the snatch, and and the thing that causes it to release. It's a fairly simple mechanism, but it's also one of these mechanisms that if anything is not there, what is it? Well, it's almost a mousetrap. And how good is almost a mousetrap? It's not good at all, right? You're missing one, comp- one component, one piece, and the whole thing is, is worthless. And in many ways, faith can be like that. We miss one piece, and it's worthless. That's why the, you know, the apostle, or James, the brother of Jesus, can say, you know, faith without works is dead. Faith, missing one of these components, 
Well, it's not true faith. It's not saving faith. And as we dive into our scriptures once again, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. As we're finishing off this, uh, this saga, this story about the, the, you know, the, what's known as the, the ark narrative in uh, 1 Samuel, and how different peoples respond to God as he comes near. And in many ways, these responses, they have lots of good things about them, lots of things in place, but there's something about their responses that leaves them on the outside looking in. It's an almost faith. And like an almost mousetrap, it just doesn't work. It's just not worth it. And if you recall with me where we've been over the past few weeks, remember, you know, Israel, they, they're being oppressed by their enemies. The, the Philistines, they come out to battle. The Philistines whoop them and they say, well, you know what? We need God on our side. Let's bring out the ark. Right? Let's bring out the, the, the thing in which heaven and earth meet, where God resides, that he would come out with us. Now, the ark wasn't just merely symbolic. The Lord was saying, you know, he's the one who, who's walking about in its midst. He's the one who's seated between the cherubim. No, no, no. Like, th- this was the place where, where God resided in a unique and special way. Yes, he's everywhere, but here is different. This is holy. This is set apart. This is special. And they say, let's bring him out so God would fight for us. And to their, perhaps, surprise and dismay, God lets them lose again. God does not fight for them in that way. The ark is captured. God himself goes into exile. He's set up in the temple of Dagon to be made a mockery of. As we learned last week, what does he do? Well, he puts to shame the idols and the gods of the nations. He unleashes plagues upon the enemies of his people. And God by himself, for himself, defeats the enemies of his people. And here in chapter 6, the ark is returning. And read with me, starting at at verse 1. When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and they said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, how shall we send it back to its place? And they answered, Well, if you return the ark of God of Israel, don't send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. And the Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and the rats that were destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? So now, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to a cart. Take the calves away. Pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in the chest beside it put the gold objects you are sending back to him, and as a guilt offering, send it on its way. But keep watching it. If it goes up to his own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster upon us. But if it does not, 
then we'll know what has happened. was not his hand that struck us, but it just happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows, hitched them on the cart, and pinned them up their calves, and they placed the ark of the Lord on the cart, and alongside it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road, lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left, and the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the first response to God's presence that we see in the Philistines. And there's, some, you know, there's something that's right about their response to God. Right? To their credit, they recognize that it's the Lord that's at work, don't they? Right? You know, they, they who are followers of Dagon and some other gods, they recognize you know, Yahweh has come to us and it is his hand that is doing this to us. We have tumors and rats plagues from him and we need to get we need to serve him to humble ourselves before him in order to to be freed from these things they at some level they they believe many of the right things right that the lord has been victorious over them that he has sent their plagues that they have committed sins and that they need atonement and they do all these things but yet, but yet, there's something missing. An almost faith is one where there's recognition without repentance. Right? They can recognize these facts about God, these true things about who the Lord is, but yet, there's no repentance. Right? They can say lots of true things. Right? The Lord defeated us. We've sinned. We need forgiveness and atonement and all that. But, despite that, did they become followers of the Lord? Did they make peace with God's people? Did they go back to Dagon's temple and finish the job that the Lord started and destroy the idols? No. And how do we know that? Well, we read that in the last week in the chapter when it gives this little note in, on chapter 5, verse 5. It says, you know, that's why to this day, however many years after this was, it was written, to this day, neither the priest of Dagon nor any of the others who enter into Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold, right? They go back to the very same idolatry from which they came. They saw the Lord's power. They saw his victory. They saw all the things that the Lord has done, and yet... They go back to Dagon. They can recognize true facts about God without repentance. It is the problem of an intellectual assent to the faith alone without true faith. It's an almost faith. That you can affirm every line of the Apostles' Creed but not know the one with whom the Apostles walked. I can have great theology about who God is and what he's, how he's revealed himself and believe it, and yet my heart remains completely closed off to his rule and reign over my life. I know a man who, in such a condition, he'll affirm, I and mean, he's not much of a theologian, but he'll affirm many, many true facts about Christianity. Whatever I need to believe, I believe. Whatever dogma I have to hold to, I, you know, I'll, I'll hold on to it. 
But yet, but yet at the same time, his life is, is well, an endless stream of self-indulgence, of constant drug use, of perpetual infidelity, without any confession, without any repentance, without any, any movement towards the rule and reign of Christ. It's, I'm going to live life my own way, and yeah, okay, I can sign on the dotted line, I believe these things. But it's not true faith. It's not saving faith. It's an almost faith that leads nowhere. That many in the church are along in the same lines. I can, I can sign my name on the dotted line of, of these beliefs, but is an intellectual assent alone to facts without any movement of our hearts towards him. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that there's not you know, redemption and forgiveness for the you know, deepest of sinners. Oh, there is. Thank God that there is. Nor am I denying the fact that we are saved by, by grace alone through faith alone. Oh, no, no, no. We hold dearly to that. But what I'm saying is that our faith, if it's intellectual assent only, we miss it. We're no better than the Philistines. And we miss the reality of God come into our life. Now let's keep reading in the story, starting at uh, verse 13. Chapter 6. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and they saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood on the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. And on that day, the people of Beshemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. And the five rulers of the Philistines saw all this, and they returned that same day to Ekron. And these are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for each Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and the number of the gold rats that was according to the number of the Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers." the fortified towns with their country villages, the large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked at the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow that the Lord had dealt, and the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Now, while the Philistines, they had a recognition without repentance, right? They recognized true facts about God without repenting. But as God comes back to his people, what we see is a rejoicing without respecting. They see the ark. They see God coming back. They see the hands of, you know, the that God has, has won this victory for himself, that God has returned himself to his people. Praise God. And they rejoice in the things of God. They take seriously the things of God. They praise God for, the, for his things, but yet at the same time, there's a callous disrespect to who God is. They can rejoice and sacrifice and have the, the Levites, you know, the this priestly class take care of things, but yet at the same time, what we see is, well, they don't actually take seriously the ways that God has called his people to relate to him. 
Now, if you were, uh, a, you know, an ancient Hebrew hearing this, you probably would have picked up on this, and you would have been the whole time cringing about, well, how the, the, the people of God failed. Now, for us, we're a little bit less familiar, and so, well, that's why I'm here. But they failed in many ways, right? They had the wrong sacrifice. What does it say? Verse 14b, it says, The people chopped up wood on the fire, or the wood of the cart, and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. But we know from Leviticus, what does God require for a burnt offering? He says, if uh, Leviticus 1.3, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. God has requirements for the sacrifices. They offer cows and he, well, he wants bulls. But they don't take his word seriously. And then what do they do? They, they set it up on a rock for all to, all to see. But what does God expect his people to do with the ark? Well, let's look at Numbers 4, 5. And this, you know, as Moses is saying, when the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons, you know, the high priest and his, and his children, are to go in and take down the, the shielding curtain and put it over the ark of the covenant. Then they're to cover the curtain with a durable leather and spread the cloth of a solid blue over that, so that, and put the poles in place. So basically, when the ark is to move, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to cover it. It's not supposed to be put on display. It's not supposed to be set up as, as you know, for everybody to see. It's supposed to be covered with a blue cloth. You know, a quick side note, right? When, at Christmas time, we always see Mary, she's what? Dressed in, in blue, Right? Because it's a representation that she is kind of like the true ark. Within her is the, is the very presence of God and the person of Jesus. Right? And that's a little factoid that you can save and you can almost impress people with it. So just hold on to that. But they, you know, they, they take it. They put it on display for all to see. You know, they have the wrong sacrifice. They have the wrong display. They have the wrong behavior. What does he go on to say? That the, that the inhabitants, you know, God put 70 of them to death because they, it either says looked into, which is what most translations say, or you know, the, looked upon or gazed upon the ark. Now, if you are a certain age, about my age, and a little bit older, when you think about people looking on the ark and dying, what do we think of? Indiana Jones. And I rewatched that clip this, this past week just to, to take in the gloriousness of really bad CGI as heads exploding, faces melting, people being zapped. Um, but, you know, here we see, you know, God's people, and they're, you know, they put the ark on display, and they're either looking into or, or really just gazing upon it, which violates what the Lord has said. What, right, in, in Exodus 19, as Moses is going up to the mountain, he, he warns the people, he says, go down and warn the people that they're not going to force their ways through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord, must, they must consecrate themselves or the Lord's going to break out against them. They're not to, they're not to rush in and, and treat God lightly. And in Numbers uh, 4, 15 and, uh, through 20, it says, you know, after Aaron, he's given instructions for moving the ark again, after Aaron and his sons, they finish covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites to come and to do the carrying. 
as another group of the priests. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. And later, that the Kohathites must not go in and look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. Right? What we see is, as the ark of God is coming towards his people, you know, they rejoice on it, they celebrate it, they, they are looking upon wonders about what God has done, but in so doing, they actually fail to take God as seriously as he requires. They sacrifice things that aren't to be sacrificed. They put on display what's not to be displayed. They gaze upon that which God has said, you're not supposed to do that. And the Lord breaks out against his people. They can rejoice over the things of God without respecting God. Now we in the church often tend to believe that we're justified by our right intentions rather than our faith. That we're justified by our feelings rather than our faith in what God has done. Were they trying to disrespect God? Were they intending to? Were they setting out that I'm going to to disrespect the Lord of hosts? I don't think so. But they failed to take into consideration the ways that God desires to be approached. And God breaks out upon them just as he does the Philistines. And the holiness of God is a lot like that. It is meant to be enjoyed and celebrated, but at the same time, it is meant, well, it's meant to cause a a little bit of fear. It's not meant to be trifled with. It's not casual as we come into the presence of, of a holy God. Just as you wouldn't go into you know, a, you know, a nuclear reactor without you know, a hazmat suit or go, you know, going into you know, a, a burning furnace without you know, wearing like a welder's mask or something, that you need some level of protection because just the nature of the thing should cause a little bit of trepidation. And this is the holiness of God for his people. Now, when you have young kids and you go to the beach, there's a fine line that you need to, to have as parents. You want them to enjoy the ocean, but not so much that they don't fear. But you also don't want them to fear so much that they can't enjoy. And when you have like, when you have like pretty little kids, you know, five and below, sometimes when you take them to the ocean, you know, and they see the, the, the vastness of the ocean, the vastness of the waves, its power as it, as it comes in, well, there, there can be a tremendous amount of fear. At least for my kids, they, they've had. And not wanting to get too close, some not even wanting to get within eight feet of it, and you have to try to kind of coax them. It's like, it's, it's a lot of fun. And after a couple hours or you know, maybe a couple days, depending on, upon the timidity of the child, they realize, oh, this is a lot of fun. And then the opposite thing happens. No, you can't go in there by yourself. No, you, don't go in that, that deep. And as parents, we realize, yes, it can be a lot of fun. They can enjoy it. But at the same time, that the ocean, it's, it's so powerful. In an instant, in a moment, just the, the, it can, its wrath can be unleashed. Right? They are to enjoy it enough, but they still need a little bit of fear. But not so fear that they can't enjoy it. 
In some ways, this is the relationship between God and his people, his holiness and his people, right? It is that there is, that we are meant to enjoy God, to be nourished by him, to find our life in him, to find our joy and our peace and our rest in him. But at the same time, that there is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He is not a tame lion, as Lewis writes in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. That there is a danger to his holiness that should make his people wary. And the people of God can often be much like Israel as they receive them. We can rejoice in the things of God, proclaim him for his, his victory and all these things, but still fail to take his holiness seriously in our lives. And this can be applied in, in many ways. I'm going to just take one. One that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. Right? He's writing to, to the church in Corinth, and they're going through, you know, well, in many ways, they are a mess. They have become, uh, you know, having factions and divisions and, you know, rumors and gossip and slander. And some are saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Christ, I follow Peter. And all thinking that their group is better than the other group. And then Paul's writing how, hey, listen, we're all on the same team. We should all rejoice together. And then he turns this and he says, like, remember, remember something about yourselves. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in your midst? That if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person? For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Right? Right? As the, the ark of God that, that inhabits, you know, where his presence inhabits, comes among the people, and they don't respect it, and God is unleashed on his own people. And Paul's saying, like, listen, the temple, which is where the ark resides, the holy place, that, that's you. That's you. And and when you're gossiping and slandering and thinking that, hey, my group is superior and your group is down here and we got the best ideas and we know how to find God and you guys are kind of following a little bit of a, of a lesser leader, you're saying you're destroying the holy temple of God. You're on thin ice here. Don't you... Don't you care about the holiness? Don't you care about what's sacred? Don't you care about the things that God cares about? And yet you're, you're doing this to say his people in whom he resides. It's a hard word. Unless it become too convicting, let's, let's move on. But we see, we see how Paul takes this idea of the holiness and applies it to his own people. Something that we think of as light, just a little bit of slander. Just a little bit of gossip. And you say, no, what you're engaging in is something far deeper. Something to be far more concerned about than that. Right, turn with me back to 1 Samuel as he, as he continues on. Starting at verse 19 again. But then God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord and the people mourned because of the heavy blow that the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? And they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim 
saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. And so the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and they took the ark of the Lord and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Whereas the Philistines, they recognized without repentance, Israel rejoiced without respecting, and they learned the hard way why you need to have the fear of the Lord, which is followed by our third error, our third almost faith, that respecting without resting. Right? They learned the fear of the Lord, that he must be respected. And so what do they ask? They say, well, where should it go now? Who can stand before the Lord? Get it out of here. We can't stand up to the holy God in our midst. He brings plague. He brings damage. He brings death among us. Get it out of here. Not unlike what the Gerasenes do as Jesus casts out the demons and they go into the pigs and they say, get out of here. We don't want you here. They fear the holy, but without resting in the God who says, this is how you come to me. They send the ark away. They send it to a, a, town, a largely Gentile town to be away from his people once again. There's a cost for the people of God to have God live with them. And not to be taken lightly. That we, we can have a terror of God, but at the same time we must trust in that God. That he didn't have to break out against his people. He gave specific directions. This is how you approach me. This is how you come near. This is how you enjoy me living within your midst. This is how you receive all the fullness of what I have to offer. These are the things that you must do. But they don't trust him. They say, send him away. Send him away. But for you, beloved, we too are called to, to meet with God, to have the holiness of God come into our midst. And while, yes, we should believe, but also have, you know, well, a faith and repentance. But, and we should rejoice in the things of God with, that, with, that, with a healthy respect and fear of the Lord over our lives. But we must go beyond that as well. We can have the fear of the Lord, but we also must trust in the Lord in the ways that he says, this is how you approach me. And how do we do it? Is it through sinless perfection? Well, maybe. But then we're asking the same questions as they asked. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Is it through groveling? No, it's that God has provided for his people the way into the most holy place. And what does the author of Hebrews says for his people? He says, he says you can boldly come before the throne of grace and receive mercy. What may have been unthinkable for the people who were originally reading and hearing this scripture read. 
whose hearts may fear going into approaching the holy. Yet the author of Hebrews says, because of what Jesus has done for his people, we don't necessarily even need to go in tepidly. We can go in boldly. Not disrespectfully, not flippantly, not casually, but boldly. That, that Christ, who offered up himself as a sacrifice, who himself was the veil, who tore the dividing veil between God and his people, cause us to come in, to enter in, to enjoy the presence of the holy. That his grace, his sacrifice, what he has done for his people is sufficient. It is enough. It is complete where the people of God can enter in. Sometimes that's hard to believe, isn't it? Sometimes we have the audacity the absolute gall to believe that our sin is greater than the blood of Jesus. We have the arrogance to think that we've blown it enough that we have been forever barred from the kingdom of God, from the presence of God, that we have been perpetually made unclean before him. And what we see in the person of Jesus, though, is the, the, the fullness, the completeness, the exactness of his work that is applied to even the, the worst sins and the worst sinners who look upon him, it cleanses us. Praise God. And so for you, perhaps you've come in, you've had a bad week, you've blown it again, and you, and well, the natural tendency of the people of God is say, I have sinned, I have messed up, I need to get my act together before I can return to God's presence. I need to, to spend a little bit of time getting my act together before I can go back to prayer. I can't pray right now. I can't enter into God's presence right now. I need to kind of get my act together. And hear this word. Hear this word. Let your sin drive you to Christ. Let your sin drive you to putting your faith in Him and in Him alone. You feel guilty. You feel ashamed. Good. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, is what Jesus says. You are living the good life when you are overcome by your own sin and inadequacy. It is then and then alone that you realize the sufficiency and the fullness of Christ's work on your behalf that in Him and in Him alone can you stand before the holy, holiness of God. And in Him and in Him alone can you enter boldly before His presence. His work is complete. It is sufficient. And that those who cast their eyes upon Him, those who look upon Him, they receive the fullness of the life of God for His people. Amen? I'll invite up the worship team as we pray. Kind Father, we, these words, we ask that you would speak once again to your people. Let the hearts of your people respond in faith and say, yes, Lord, we are trusting in you. Yes, Lord, we are trusting in the work of your Son and your Son alone. That what we could not do, he has done for his people. That what brought terror upon your people to enter into, to draw near to your holiness Lord, you have called us to enter in boldly before you, that we might find your life, that we might find your grace, that we might find your mercy upon us. So come, Lord, among your people even now. By your Spirit, renew our spirits. By your Spirit, speak to our hearts. 
that for your children who are discouraged, remind them again that they are your child, that they are indeed a child of God. And for those who have this almost faith, Lord, transform our hearts to trust in you and you alone. We pray to the wonderful and uh, name of. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those 